The Tale of the Seven Keys. Chapter 8. Hi, this is Jade Taylor from Sci-Fi's The Magicians. I play Katie Orloff Diaz, and welcome to the Coffee Clash Club. Welcome to the Coffee Clash Club. Welcome to the Coffee Clutch Crew, The Magician's Episode Review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing the Season 3 finale, Episode 13, Will You Play With Me? Written by Sierra Gamble and John McNamara, directed by Chris Fisher, IMDb gave this an 8.5. The group finds what they're looking for in an attempt once and for all to get magic back. Okay, Christina, so as a season finale, this is going to be very difficult for us. I really wish we had a week where we could let it set in, we could watch it one more time at least, and really understand what we're feeling, because I, for one, am having very mixed emotions here. I am too, but I kind of think that's the point of the podcast, is for us to give more immediate reactions. I don't think we're the only ones out there feeling this way, judging by the tweets and some of the articles I read. Well, judging by the tweets, for sure, but the articles I read all pretty much loved it. Well, you know, some of them kind of fan out no matter what on every episode. I think part of the problem is we set the bar super high this season. In my opinion, this was without a doubt the best season the magicians have done so far, and that's in a show that I really loved, season one and two. Absolutely. Best season ever. We had a lot of ground to cover, so I don't know how I would have done this differently. I'm not saying that I have a better solution, but I do feel the biggest problem was there was way too much packed into one episode. I kept saying to myself, why did they save all of this material for the last episode? Because I have a feeling that there are many people out there that are missing stuff. You have to keep pausing, rewinding, going back, and I have a little bit of book knowledge to guide me But even I was super lost some of the time. I was very lost many of the times. And a lot of the shows that we review, especially the big ones, they do two hours for the season finale. Yes. It's worth it. That maybe would have solved all the problems if they could have done that. I think there were some great elements going on here. I really liked some of the book tie-ins that we haven't gotten to see in a while. I enjoy that season three, they struck out on their own and did an amazing job at handling the content differently. But I'm not going to lie. When I saw the world going upside down and knew we were going to Castle Blackspire, I started freaking out. And I had to tweet about it because you were freaking out. You were yelling. (laughs) There was also some exciting setup for season four, but there were areas that I did not feel were handled that great. We flew by the Fillory situation with Fen as acting High King. The Fairy Queen wrap-up felt a little too quick for me. And I don't like some of the things that they did with Alice's character, although I do understand them. Listen, there's so many things about this episode that I truly love, and I will be sure to bring those up as we go through the plot. But really briefly, I'll say the visuals were out of sight. Amazing. Truly enjoyed the visuals. The music in the background, especially at the end... Very well done and definitely brought out the emotions for the viewers. Yeah, I liked the music when they were headed into Castle Blackspire. I thought that set the tone very well. I love how it ended off. I'm very intrigued by that, but I hate the way they got to it. Yeah, it felt like about halfway through the episode is when things started unraveling for me. I enjoyed the first half. I thought it was good setup, even though they were moving at a brisk pace. 
but then it, it was almost a little too much and it started to come apart at the seams, I thought. Listen, there's a lot of things that we predicted that did come true and I really enjoyed that. They were good uh, story plots and we'll go over those in a moment. But one thing I really disliked is that we went 13 episodes fighting alongside our crew on this quest for the keys. This is the episode when the keys shouldn't be an afterthought. And I felt from minute one that it was no longer about the keys. Yeah, and I'll talk about it more later, but Alice was able to destroy them so easily with the power of one vial of fairy dust, whereas it takes the entire magical being of a god like Prometheus or a goddess like Julia to rebuild them. There was a little disconnect for me. Another thing that I really disliked, and I'm going over it quick, I could dwell on this forever, but we have seen so much growth from our heroes this season. And I feel like all of that was forgotten about in this one episode. Most of them fell hard back into their old patterns. And the, the few areas that there were growth, I wanted to see more. For instance, how long have I been talking about waiting to see Q step up to the plate? And this was his moment. He was doing it. He was ready to sacrifice himself, become the new jailer, stand up to this monster that's at the castle at the end of the world. He didn't quite get the opportunity. I mean, not that I want to see him stuck there forever, but it was a good character arc for him. Julia's arc was also amazing. I loved her going up against Alice and starting to put her in her place. But as we sort of suspected, moments later, that's all stripped away due to the sacrifice she made. Yeah, so we approached this episode knowing that this character, Julia, has become too strong at this point. We wish it went on longer. We really enjoy when our heroes are getting strong and they can take control of the scene and of the people in the scenes. We get so little wins in the magician's show, and we could finally get little wins with her. But we knew, because she was too strong, and we hypothesized that she would either have to give it up to let the magic go to all the rest of the humans or all the rest of the magician, magicians in the world, or she would have to lose it fighting the beast, which I was content with. I knew that was going to have to happen. But in this episode, she had to give it up for something so menial. Two of our characters being so uncharacteristic at this point. Yeah, I mean, we've suspected Alice. She's had issues all along, but it felt like we had to take a drastic jump to go to why she destroyed the keys so that we could get Julia needing to sacrifice her magic to rebuild the keys. Do you know what I mean? It's a great point that she acts like Prometheus in order to do that, but you have to shove Alice into this box to get there. As you said before, I do like where that puts Alice by the end of the story, already looking a little Cassandra-like, and what that could mean for next season, but the in-betweens are a little rocky, we did get some good examples throughout the course of this season of Julia having that power. So I think a big thing for me was not wanting to see her have it more or utilize it more, even though that would have been great and fun. I was enjoying the glimpses it was giving us into this other realm we haven't been able to see thus far. What's going on with the gods and behind the scenes? We hear this brief thing about the labs that they have being able to create other worlds, but there's so much more story that could have been accessed, and she was our only gateway to that. And a lot of our Clatchers brought up good conversation pieces, and we'll go over that in the end of the episode. A lot of them mirroring what we're feeling and spelled out to us very eloquently 
So I look forward to reading those. Now with the meaning of not trying to drone on and on, I could go on and bring up a lot more things. Let's push on because I know I could sit here forever and bring up all these little details. As the plot progresses, we'll find those moments. Let's talk new faces and places. We finally got to see and meet Prometheus, played by Georgie Dabaros. In Greek mythology, Prometheus was a titan hero and trickster, created man from clay and defied the gods by stealing fire to give to humanity. He wanted to make them more godlike. This was an act that enabled them to progress and become more civilized. Now, of course, the rest of the Olympians didn't like that. His punishment for the theft was that Zeus sentenced him to eternal torment. I'm sure you've heard of this. He was bound to a rock where each day an eagle, the emblem of Zeus, was sent to feed on his liver. He would peck it out and then it would grow back overnight. The reason for this was the liver was thought to be the seed of human emotion. Eventually, in some stories, he was freed by Hercules, but others, this just went on forever. Continuing with the Greek pantheon, we met Calypso, or Kali, played by Michaela McManus. It turns out she was the architect of the castle at the end of the world. Her story is a little more difficult to figure out from mythology. Most of what we know comes from her story with Odysseus, but there's conflicting reports down to what type of goddess she was, who her parents were. Her name means to cover, conceal, or deceive. She was a nymph, a minor female goddess that's connected to a specific place, who was imprisoned on the island of Ogygia after supporting her father, the Titan Atlas, in the war between the Titans and Olympians. She then detained Odysseus on her island for seven years, enchanting him with her singing in her golden loom to try to keep him there by making him immortal. Some of these stories make her out to seem like kind of the bad guy by holding Odysseus there, whereas others, she's really the victim that was stuck on the island being sent hero after hero that she would fall in love with only for them to leave her. And finally, we have Iris, played by Madison Beatty, the messenger goddess. She wasn't portrayed all that great in our storyline here, but in mythology, she was the personification of the rainbow which was the link between heaven and earth. She flew messages to the Olympian gods during the war while her twin sister served the Titans, kind of making them enemies. Here's what I thought was interesting. She was said to have golden wings and travel with the speed of the winds from one end of the world to the other into the depths of the sea and the underworld. Hmm. So maybe that's a character that could come back later. Perhaps if they don't completely abandon the Julia God thing now. Well, that's what I mean. Do we still get that window in any way? I know we're going to see more probably with the Penny 40 storyline, perhaps of Hades and what's going on down there. Well, Julia said after she remade the keys that I'll never feel connection again. I still don't know that it's summed up, though. How much power does she have left? Is there any of that? Is she a normal magician? Does she have nothing? You know, what did that do to her? And finally, we have Aura, played by Alexandra Metz, who is the jailer of Castle Blackspire. I love our view into this place, the castle at the end of the world. We find out its backstory. It's a secure prison to keep the world safe from the monster inside, and it can only be accessed by the right questers, who, according to Prometheus, will save the gods one day once they have magic back. Yeah, these scenes with Castle Blackspire, especially them getting to it, so beautiful. And I can't believe I figured something out last week and didn't even know it. I was making a joke about flat earthers, <laughs> which is people that still this to this day believe that earth is flat. 
just because it said at the end of the world. So I was making a dumb joke saying, so the world's flat and it is. Well, now I can say it. We had to pause the podcast because I looked at you like you had five heads. (laughs) And I said, wait a second. How do you know Fillory's flat? And you were like, wait, what? Fillory's flat? (laughs) We had to cut this whole section out. I thought you had truly foreseen that and I knew it was going to be important. I didn't know it would come up in the finale, but eventually we would see that's what's hiding underneath the flip side of the world. So this at least definitively clears one thing up. The shot that we keep getting of the dying earth is not Fillory. Right. And that's kind of a sneaky way of how I knew it wasn't. Yeah, but you just brought up another thing. And I hate to do this. (laughs) There's so many unanswered stories. And I understand that going from one season to a next, there's going to be. But normally a show doesn't make you feel like they're completely abandoned. And we say that The Magicians is really good at not abandoning things. But in this case, I'm a little discouraged. Yeah, I know that they will come back around to everything. They have proved that they don't ever drop storylines completely. But for me, you need to have a certain amount of that wrapped up by your season finale and then leave enough questions to keep you excited for season four. While we got tons of exposition and explanation in this episode, maybe even a little too much, there still were far more questions unanswered. What's going on with these characters? What's going on with these plot lines? Some of them going back to the very beginning of season one. Yeah, just off the top of my head, one that just reminded me of this, which you were just speaking of, those clips we were getting of that world being destroyed. We have no explanation for that. Yeah, that one I don't mind them leaving open because I feel like it is going to be bigger to the central storyline, but... We have several characters missing in action, including Poppy, Marina, Victoria, and Harriet. That thing's been going on a little too long for me. Yeah. Penny 40. Penny 40 and Hades in the Underworld, which, okay, Okay. maybe we could have gotten a little clip of him, but that's fine. I really don't know about not coming back to Poppy at all. That one's also been a little long for me. Overall, I kind of felt like this finale put definitive emphasis on some characters while very many others did not play a significant role. Even while they were standing there. Yeah. It was like towards the end, let Penny have one thing to say. Penny 23 (laughs) had like very few lines. Josh was kind of irrelevant. Margot and Elliot right up till the very end and they had their moment last time. So that's okay. But anyhow, coming back around to new things... At Castle Blackspire, we did get to see the monster that lives there. A creature with no name that the gods created, something that simply wants. And that indeed was scary. We were half right on this. Doesn't truly look like a monster. It is able to switch bodies, which have they done that a little much for you? Yeah, and it's an easy thing. I'm not sure if I'm too excited for that. I'll tell you one thing. I am very excited for Elliot to be a bad guy. But... Him jumping around, we've kind of seen that, like you said. One thing I think we were right about that is it's not about the monster itself. It's the fact that the beast can't be beaten by the gods. We were thinking that the monster on the other side was other types of mankind or human beings. But what are the characteristics of the beast? It's need. It needs to be served. It needs to be loved. It's like a child. It's very needy. And that is very humanistic, especially in accordance to the gods. It's almost like the gods had this idea of what humans were supposed to be like, 
completely dependent on them, all innocence, all need, all the time. And that's what they made. But it was so far to that extreme without these other things that perhaps they couldn't comprehend that would balance us out. And I think that's what makes it really scary. Its appetite cannot go unfed. Yeah. And in that respect, it is a little like other people theorized, opening Pandora's box and not being able to close it. Yeah. And humans, if you think about it, our appetites are never finished. People get rich and just need to be richer. Children receive a gift and the next year they need it to be bigger. Adults will look, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. We'll look at our neighbor and be like, oh, they got it good. There's always a want. There's always a need. And I like the concept behind that. The execution was very scary. As with many things, I'll probably say this episode, the logistics of it confused me. We've maybe given a reason why they would create it. And these gods do things that don't make a whole lot of sense. But why would they create something so strong? How can they create something that's even stronger than they are that they have no way of stopping? So there is no way to kill this thing? Well, that's definitely a season four. That's confusing question. to me. You know, the, the power balance of a lot of things in this episode made me pause and kind of took me out of the world for a minute. Listen, I have to apologize because normally we have a rhythm and I know I keep derailing it. Because <laughs> we're very emotional. We're I have being very so many human. thoughts and feelings <laughs> and I need to express them. <laughs> And finally, we have chapter eight in the tale of the seven keys, and that will take us into the plot for the episode. Quentin narrates for us that the knight remained imprisoned at the castle at the end of the world. Not even a warrior as great as he could break the bonds placed on him by the witch. He could not escape. But his daughter, every bit the knight her father was, and more so, never gave up. She fought monsters real and imagined, without as well as within. She had won all seven keys— and now she set sail for the castle. She faced the door, and in it there were seven keyholes. The door swallowed the keys whole and slowly opened. Up ahead she saw her father bound in chains. Father, she cried, I'm here to save you. And we don't get any further, because of course the group keeps breaking in. Margot says, does it say where it is? And Elliot, wait, it doesn't make sense that the door swallowed the keys, but then she has them back to put them in the locks. This is sloppy plot. This episode started so strong. <laughs> the beautiful visuals while Quentin is narrating. And of course, we've said time and time again, we love when Q is the narrator. His voice is so perfect for that. Mm -hmm. And then we have the typical and amazing funny parts of the magicians. And Margot and Elliot are always right on top of that. And this is so funny because it mirrors the way we watch TV. If there's a plot hole, it really bothers us. Sloppy plot, right? It's the audience breaking in. Hold on a second. What about the really important points like where is the castle? But it's also kind of like foreshadowing for what we have to be prepared for for this episode. Josh picks right up on that, that it could be a, a clue, this paradox. And Katie brings up the siphon problem. But Alice says, well, the library doesn't have enough reserves to power it anyway. And while this is happening, Julia begins hearing voices again and then sees Iris, who informs Julia she is now being called Our Lady of the Tree. You fulfilled the task Our Lady Underground gave you to grow the spark, and now you are the flame. So I'm a full-on goddess, correct? Your concerns are greater now. Your duty to them is over. And by the way, so is all that pain. 
You can put it down. Iris says they have to go. They have a lot of work to do, and the group can take it from there. Her duty to them is over now, and her concerns are greater. I was a little torn at Julia's first response being, okay, the group can take it from here. I'm good then. Let's go off and be a god. That didn't feel like the path she was headed down. She was so concerned with helping them, helping other people, being there for them. But I guess she was assuming at this point, you know, Iris is another full-blown god. She knows what she's talking about. She's going to help Julia to help others. But also, if I was the crew, I would be really upset about this. We have no magic. We're facing such an incredibly hard task. We need Julia with godlike power to come with us. Yeah, this was the first sign that the show is moving the chess pieces in order to get to the end that they want. And I hate when it's that obvious. Mm. Even Quentin being overwhelmingly happy for her, which did show good growth. I was glad to see him saying, you deserve this. You should do something that's good for you. But if even I'm on this end saying, why can't we just have Julia for one more day to help with that? I, I found it a little hard to believe that he wouldn't. But it created a very nice moment between the two of them. Oh, yeah, that was a great scene. And I like the fact that Julia, as a character, was balancing the sadness with the godlike emotions as well. Mm -hmm. That scene was very touching. And I have to say, I was very excited to see Julia as a god. I thought that they could really extrapolate from this and show us, maybe not even this season, but show us her going on a journey, creating a world. How amazing would that be? I almost wanted them to just leave that with her. Yes. Leave it at that goodbye. Have the crew try to deal with this on their own and then come back around to her later on. And I thought the one-off spell that she was giving to Quentin at the end was going to be like, check off spell. And that's what was going to end up getting them out of the danger at the very end. But instead, Quentin just kind of had to use it quickly to be able to access Aura, get into her mind and talk to her. And even the rest of the group says, really? That's what you use the one <laughs> spell on? And Julia's a god and she can only give you one damn tiny little yeah. spell. She has all this magic. Why couldn't she give you five? <laughs> or like a necklace that was charmed yeah. where he can utilize it. <laughs> yeah, so I thought making it a one-off surely would have something to do in the end. But uh, yeah, I guess not. It was also a little tricky. Uh, they had to get to the finding Calypso thing really quickly. It didn't bother me so much though, this part. Josh realizes that he's on to someone who maybe could help them. He's looking at a page in the book of the witch sitting at a table and on top of it is a smaller castle. She has drafting tools for architects surrounding her. So they surmise she is the one who made the castle. The problem is they need to figure out who she is and there are 50 minor gods of architecture and the arts. So they start going through them, talking about the Ojigia story. Oh, Gaigia. I like how <laughs> oh, they did that. That was funny. Yeah, that was, that was cute. And I love how they hearken back to the Odyssey story. That's a book I talk about constantly to you, mainly because I've only read a handful of books, but that's one of them, and I read that in high school. Really hard to get through, but the stories that are in there are often mimicked in movies all the time. Moana, I mean, I could go on and on. It, the Odyssey is one of those classics that will live on forever. Well, and Calypso has been depicted many times in many places both throughout classical literature and pop culture. But here they find her by Googling the CEO of the Candy Collider game. Uh, and it's a woman named Callie. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, I love this. Hand on pop culture. You do? Candy you love Crush. It? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can't the, the allusion to Candy Crush is yeah, great. Yeah, I love that. But finding Callie through a Google search, uh, you know, I okay, they had to get to her. That's it's one fine. of the things, like, that's fine. Progressive storyline like that. If right. you make it funny, I could deal with that. True. Adding a little humor goes a long way. And they jump right to seeing her, so that's good. She says she will talk to them because she promised Prometheus she would, but she's not a fan of this magic quest. After all, it's the reason he's dead. But she explains for us, the castle was the greatest commission of her career, to design a prison secure for high-caliber clients. When she explained she would need the most steadfast jailers, Prometheus offered to find them, or rather to create them, with a quest. This explains the girl who is currently there as the jailer. She's there of her own free will, as was her father. Calypso gave them an opportunity to perform a sacred task to keep the world safe, and she can leave if she wants. So it makes sense when Prometheus was looking to hide his back door to magic, she had the perfect place, one full of monsters where no one wanted to look. He also promised to make his quest so difficult that only the right people would pass, ensuring it remained secure. He channeled every atom of his power into the keys. He gave everything for humans. All I can say is he believed in you. He said he saw a time to come when you would save us if you had magic. He believed this completely. And then his enemies came and overpowered him when he was weak. Okay, so I had you rewind this a few times. Still at this point, it's so murky to me. I don't understand this. Mm. And the Clatchers might hate me and disrespect me from now on. But I got to be honest. They built this castle. Prometheus was all about humans. He thought the humans would be there to save them, the gods, right? So why would they also put a beast that cannot be killed, even gods are afraid of, in the same castle with uh, the same quest? And then put the back door to magic right there. I mean, it's, it is very gray, I think. It's very black. black <laughs> yeah. But also, let's take it a step further. Why did Calypso take Orr's father who I guess wanted to be trapped there so that Orr would go there. What, and then what, like, what was the whole point of that? Well, it sounds like when she created this prison, there were already things that the gods had which needed to be kept secure because she says it was a prison made for high-caliber clients. They came to her and commissioned her to do it. So maybe they'd already even made the monster at that point. And they say, Calypso, we need you to build this awesome jail. Well, she can build the jail itself, but who's to keep it safe? This is where Prometheus steps in and says, well, the only way to really ensure that that happens correctly is to use humans who are molded over the course of a quest. And Q has been telling us this all along. You are not picked because you're special <laughs> and go immediately pass go and collect $200. You become the right person over the course of the quest. It molds you and shapes you. So by the time you get to the end, if you do... Now you're the right person. So I like that. So it, her father went and completed this quest and then purposely sort of made the bait to bring the daughter in to be the next jailer. But they could leave at any time. They've done the entire quest. They've gotten to this place and then they've agreed to be the jailer and stay kind of like we see Quentin doing during this episode. Okay, great. Thank you for that. <laughs> so that makes sense. But now my heart's broken again. We were feeling, and we were very excited, because our heroes have been shaped and molded this whole season from these quests. So why do they pull a Walking Dead move? And what I mean by that is, 
It's season eight of Walking Dead, and they're still walking into corners, nonchalantly dark corners. Doing dumb shit. Doing dumb shit, and then they get bitten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why would they pull a Walking Dead where Elliot's like, nope, I'm going to take this in my own hands, and I'm going to shoot this guy. And then Alice is like, well, I'm going to snort this, and I'm just going to destroy everything right away. Yeah. And, yeah. you know... I agree. There were things that felt out of character. And I was actually saying that as of last episode. I think when you have to move too quick and cover too much ground, you do sacrifice some things that don't totally line up with the characters you're trying to create. And that's a very dangerous game to play. I think it would have been much better if they didn't try to pack so much and get to such a big punch. I don't think it worked out maybe the way they hoped if you've been following these characters that closely. And some people might disagree. Some people might say, freaking Alice the entire season. I knew this was coming. She did exactly what they were setting us up for, and she got put in her place. So, you know. You know what I like about this, Chris? Oftentimes when you have gripes, I'm the one that will come up with reasons why it's okay or or explain it through. And you're always like, why are you always, you know, you find the best in everything. Because I'm bitching so much this episode, I'm seeing you be the one that's the level-headed... Well, listen, I'm doing my fair share of bitching, and I did it last night, so maybe I got some of it out of my system. I I definitely say I have fully mixed feelings on this, but I, I get very down when there is sacrifice of some things that feel like what's central to a character. Because especially with a story like The Magician's, It is all about the characters they've been creating since season one. Now, what I will say is they went through an enormous amount of struggles in the books. They acted very human. They didn't totally turn corners and become different people. They had stumbling blocks. They sometimes moved backwards a little bit. They were thrust in and out of magic at times that really annoyed you just when you think you're getting it back. Nope, now the magic's gone again. Or nope, now we don't have it. So that's a hallmark of this storyline. And the losing it, I didn't mind as much. But we'll continue to explore the character things as we go along. I'm getting a little concerned because I I don't want to make our Clatchers angry. There's so many things about this episode that I did enjoy. I just need to reiterate that. Don't, don't, you don't have to justify okay. it. We have plenty of love for the magicians, and hopefully our listeners know that. This is one of the best shows on TV. That's why we cover it. But I think that's also why we hold it to a higher standard. We hold it so close. <laughs> but I'm glad that we reviewed the Prometheus Calypso thing, because I think it was packed full of information. And this ends off by her saying she's been waiting for the questers to come so she can tell them where the castle is since the day Prometheus made the keys. And this is where she takes them to the picture of Fillory that's upside down. And she says, this is what it looked like before Ember and Umber got there. So I like that. That kind of confirms that they didn't wholly create this world. There was something there and they basically flipped it upside down and yep. just started yeah. over. Well, I think this was their, uh, one of their first worlds. And you know, as an artist, when you're first starting out, you're often copying, you know, just to get better or taking something that's there and flipping it over, basically, Mm -hmm. and creating your own off of it. And that's exactly what they did. I really enjoyed that. I also enjoyed the way this actress played Calypso. And I enjoy the way all the gods are displayed in The Magicians. Just by the way they speak and their demeanor subconsciously puts them a little above the humans. Yeah, you can tell they're different. Exactly. Even when they're dressed like normal humans. Exactly, because yeah. Because Persephone hasn't been every time we've seen her. 
But Calypso's just inside of this company looking like a normal CEO. And, you know, of course, our group is saying, yeah, yeah, that's all well and good. But how do we actually get there? Where is this place? And she feels the need to warn them before she reveals the location. She says, everything I put the girl through, I did to prepare her for what's locked inside. That's why there's one thing you need to understand. What's locked inside that castle can never ever be allowed to escape. Maybe a little information about how the thing is able to escape or how easy that is would have been helpful. Guys, just a heads up. The beast is going to look like a teenager. He's going to look docile. Don't let that fool you. One word. This is all they needed to say to the group. Lamprey. (laughs) Okay, got it. (laughs) Yeah. And if you try to kill it, it's just going to jump to another person. Just explain it. It's just like the lamprey. Exactly. They would go in there wrapped up in foil, (laughs) right? And all would be good. Exactly. (laughs) This is one of the times where I wish I just put a microphone on during the show and recorded it without us. Well, I would know, but without you knowing. Because if I had a recording of the way you reacted, yelling, it's the upside down, it's the upside down. I think that would have been great podcast. So pumped. I have a little something about that to read from the book, but I'm going to save it till later on in our spoiler section. Christina, that reminds me, uh, Clatchers, this one's going to be a little longer than normal because we're not doing a bonus episode for this season. So that's going to be at the end of this episode, a little bit of bonus news. We're going to tally up everyone's MVMs to get the season MVM. And our thoughts on the season as a whole. But first, let's check in at Whitespire, where as acting High King, Fen is running Fillory double-checking tax collector reports when the fairy queen comes to her for help. Sorry. She says six fairies have disappeared in two days, and she knows it was humans because she found a contact. I'm sorry. Don't say sorry. And was it from simple contacts? (laughs) How nice. (laughs) This scene was fun. It was a nice reprieve from uh, what's going on with the rest of the heroes. Yeah, I think we needed that. And really nice to see Fen coming into her own, huh? Yeah, she's wearing Elliot's crown, which is very cool. And seeing her, you know, apologizing for everything that she's doing. And also the way Tick Pickwick is acting. I wanted to yell at him, be like, fool, why are you acting like this is torture for you? They could have literally tortured you. And executed you. Yeah. But I enjoyed the dynamic now between the Fairy Queen and Fen. I would have liked that to go on a little longer with her guiding her, kind of irritated at how bashful Fen is acting. They come to a place where they finally have an understanding. And we get about a minute of that. Yeah. That also brings up the fact that if I was a Florian, I'd be very pissed off. We just voted Margot High King. And there she goes, leaving us again. Yeah. And now seeing how the episode ends, she's not going to be in Fillory for a very long time. How could they leave nobody? I mean, they didn't leave nobody. They left Fen, but it's none of our children of Earth at a time where we just barely escaped (laughs) rebellion. I mean, the climate's got to be very hot still. Yeah. Oh, that reminds me. Another thing we still haven't gone back to is what's going on with the Lorians and the floaters. That's a good question another hanging thread there. Meanwhile, Julia is taken to Iris's lab, where she goes to think and create worlds. She tells her Julia will split her time between her own lab, creating a new world, and answering prayers. But Julia is having trouble concentrating. She keeps telling her she can feel her friends. She's sensing something is not right there. Iris is kind of brushing that off. She says it'll take time for the connections to dissolve 
but Julia needs to keep disciplined and not be seduced because that will waste her energy. Instead, she should focus it on building a world where other people will not come to harm. And no fairies will be harmed, yeah. So I see where she's coming from. Looking at it from an outsider's point of view, you could think, I don't think Iris is a good person or a good god. This might be a bad guy. But they live so long, and I'm sure they, in the beginning, probably made the mistake many times, beckoning to every want and need, every help, and seeing that no matter what I do, these humans manage to mess it up again and mess it up again. And she even says, they're going to lose magic, then they're going to gain it back, then they're going to lose it again in a blink of an eye. Yes, but there was a couple of things here. One, if you're not stopping to help people like that that are in trouble, how are you really bettering the world? Has she created worlds where no beings come to harm ever? Yeah. It doesn't make it seem like that. Let's maybe see one of those worlds. And if so, why aren't you doing things to fix this one that would help them? Yeah. Second thing, the way she talked about answering people's prayers is what set me off that something's not quite right about Iris. She said, well, you know, in the little bit of free time that you have, well, then you can go answer those pesky prayers, which nobody really wants to do. They don't care. No, we've said that time and time again. Gods never really care about the humans. I think that it would have been best for Julia, and the gods should know this by now with humans, especially like a new god being made from a human. These are her friends. This is the quest that she was on that you just picked her out of. You should at least let her fulfill that quest and get some closure so that she can approach her new duties with a clear mind. And what's the problem with her doing that if she wants to? I mean, how does that hurt Iris to have her go help these humans? It'll take two seconds. What is a blip on the radar for them? And then she'll come back. I mean, she is a goddess now. She can pretty much do whatever she wants. If I was Julia, I would say screw you, which eventually, luckily, she does. So let me take it from another point of view. Were they scared? Was Our Lady Underground and Iris scared for Julia, knowing where they were about to go to the one being that they cannot defeat? Were they scared to lose her like they inevitably do? And that's why she was like, don't worry about them. Don't think about them. Well, Persephone might have been this Irish lady. I didn't get the sense that she cared too much about anything. But I'm sure they've all heard the story of Prometheus. In mythology, the rest of the Olympians looked down on Prometheus for how much he cared about these dirty, quote-unquote, humans. They're there to do our bidding, sometimes solve problems that we can't, which they hated that thought. The fact that they needed demigods, they always had trouble admitting that, saying that to them. So there were a few that were kind of helpful over time, but the really big one was Prometheus and look what happened to him. It's used now kind of as a cautionary tale. This podcast is brought to you by Simple Contacts. There are a million things demanding your time and contact lenses shouldn't be one of them. With Simple Contacts, you can renew your prescription and reorder your contacts from anywhere in minutes. No more doctor's offices or waiting rooms. It's vision care for the 21st century that makes the process, well, simple. Here's how it works. Need to renew your prescription? Take a five-minute vision test from your phone or computer. It's reviewed by a licensed doctor. You receive a renewed prescription and reorder your contacts. The test is only $20. Compare that with an appointment, which without insurance could cost over $200. Plus, going to the doctor, sitting there, waiting, 
having a guy poke at your eyeball. Just the hassle, yeah. Simple Contacts has all the brands and types of lenses you're familiar with, so you never have to shop around to find your lenses at the best price. They have been rated five stars over 3,000 times on the App Store. You can text with the support team and always get to speak with a person, not a robot. Oh, that's worth it in and of itself. But that's not all. Shipping is free, and our listeners get $30 off their first Simple Contacts order. To save $30 on your lenses, just go to simplecontacts.com forward slash CKC and enter the code CKC at checkout. A quick reminder, this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. You'll still need those occasionally, but it is the most convenient way to renew a prescription or reorder your contacts. Check out Simple Contacts and get $30 off by going to simplecontacts.com forward slash CKC and enter the code CKC at checkout. Save yourself time, money, and a headache with Simple Contacts. Regrouping at the cottage, Penny volunteers to travel in to check out the castle, but the crew is against it. They are looking for help from the night. Okay, so I watched it the second time, and thank God I did, because I was so concerned with the library having a traveler send them right there, and I was going to say, well, why did our heroes have to go on this trip with the Munjack to fly in when you could just travel there? Hmm. So it looks like Penny was going to just do that, but I like the way the crew told him not to. Basically, they were saying, we don't know where you're going to travel into, and we already lost our penny, and we're not going to just throw you to the fire. But in the end, it would have been so much better if he just went in right where the keys were, put all the keys in and turned it. Or (laughs) he might just have gotten an idea of what they were up against with this monster, which they certainly could have used that. Can't Penny go over there, but not physically? Well, we know that our penny had the ability to psychically go into people's minds that he probably could have done that with Aura without... Q having to waste his spell, but this doesn't sound like anything Q told the group about. Yet another heroic but dumb, maybe, Quentin move. They do chastise him later for wasting the spell to find that out. But ultimately, I think he knew this was going to come to a place where maybe he would have to be the one to step up and he thought he was helping them. When he goes to talk to Aura, she knows he's there about the fountain, the back door to magic, but she can't help. She tells him the monster killed them all, and they can't imagine what he's capable of, so she can't risk the security. That's the thing. Why can she tell him that, but she can't tell him, this is what he's capable of. This is what, doesn't she think it's smart to let him know that this creature can jump into someone? Yeah, but uh, I guess... As a TV show, you don't divulge that kind of stuff. I think we're so hung up on the fact that our heroes were so dumb to mess it up that we wish so badly that these people would have Well, told I'm them. sorry. This woman has been there for Lord knows how many years. Her father was there before. This is the biggest single piece of information to explain how he works. I find it very hard to believe that she wouldn't say that. Yeah, even like, the monster killed them all. You can't imagine what he's capable of. I mean, he looks like a little bitch, but he has so much power. Like that, even that would have been awesome. Don't even say you don't know what he's capable of. He looks like a little boy, but he can jump into people and inhabit you and possess you. That's not difficult. But for whatever reason she doesn't, Q returns to the group and explains the plan they created together. Aura will open the door. All they have to do is get in, turn the keys, and get out fast, and she will take care of the monster. The deal is for Quentin to stay there, in the castle, and be the new jailer. So basically what we didn't see on the scenes is he said, I have something for you. You can finally leave and live your life. I will take your place if you help us. Mm -hmm. And the group doesn't like that, as he must have known they wouldn't. If I was Quentin... 
and I understood all of that, I wouldn't tell them. Why did he tell them that piece of it? Just say she agreed to help us. We go in and we use the keys. Uh, I think even, no, because then they would have persisted there and they would have had a fight in an inopportune time. What I would have done after the group explained to them that they wanted to use the gun, and you could see they were so adamant about using the bullet, I would have said, no, this is the way we have to do it. Just like he said, if I've learned anything from these quests, is that we have to sacrifice. So give me that gun because you're not using it. Well, one way or another, yeah. They should have made sure that did not come there. Give me the gun or give me the bullet. Yeah. Well, while they're learning about this, Gavin and Irene are stopped by Fenn in the woods of Fillory. She tells them they need to stop stealing fairies. And they're about to travel away when she uses this exact technique that works so well. Hold on a second. I have something you need in the castle. Mm -hmm. Very smart thinking, Fenn. And I love the fact that Fenn went out there dressed as a fairy to stop them. But this is when I started questioning the fairy storyline. This whole season, the fairies were so much more powerful than our magicians. I mean, we didn't have magic, of Mm -hmm. course, but their magic is pure. They have great magic. Why couldn't the fairy queen be out there and just nail them, just like she would have done in the beginning of the season? And how are they getting in and out of Fillory? I feel like there was a lot of things about Fillory that I don't know if we dropped or I'm just not understanding. It was super hard to find entrances to get in and out. Even our crew who had been there before had difficulty in the past. They had to find old locations from the books where the Chatwins had gotten in. They had to discover the grandfather clock that used to be there. Let me stop you there. I, I get what you're saying. But remember, this traveler works for the library. They have all that information. So for him, it, it, I guess it makes sense, but it seems like there's been a lot of that going on. There used to be a time difference yeah. in between. We discussed that. And then funny enough, Melly tweeted us after the episode with that same question. I thought there was a time difference between mm-hmm. that. That was abandoned after season one, for sure. I can understand them doing that. And even yeah. in the books, the kids used to say there was no rhyme or reason. Sometimes it would move faster mm. there, sometimes not. You never knew where you were going to show up. Yeah, I think once you start introducing different timelines, now your base timeline shouldn't have different time frames and all that stuff. It'd be too much. Yeah. Well, once they get Gavin and Irene into the castle, Fen tells the fairy queen they need to keep her there long enough to stop her from getting the siphon working for the library. But the fairy queen doesn't listen. She strikes a new deal. She offers them the magic of 50 fairies with one body, the power of royal marrow in exchange for a new agreement. No fairy will be hunted anywhere, and the deal can never be broken by any being. I think she knew Irene's greed and that this would work, and it did. And character-wise, I really enjoyed that the queen was the one to do this. We have seen in the progression of the season, going from hating her to loving her, the fact that she is all about her people. She is a true queen. And this is what she's been trying to accomplish all along, a way to finally keep them safe and free. And she did it. So let's go back to when the queen says, I have broken a deal and now we are compromised. So we're seeing it firsthand now. It seems that with this, every human can see the fairies now. Is that true? I was thinking that, and that could be part of it, but I was also wondering if it means their word is not as strong in making a deal. It used to be that if they said that, that was it. It was unbreakable. So maybe this was also a way to reverse that. If she makes this ultimate deal as the queen, it will reinstate the sanctity, the force of their deals again, so that it can't be broken. Yeah, okay. Also, you know, I just confused myself there. 
Because when she broke the deal, the fairies disappeared, actually. And they were invisible. Yeah, and that would seem like maybe even still too small of a thing. I know being seen is a big deal, but it felt more like this bond of their word becomes a solid deal. Something about that was compromised. For sure. But let me flip that question over now, now that I'm thinking about it. How is Gavin and his crew getting these fairies if they're invisible? Well, maybe in Fillory, they've been thinking they're safe since they made this transition and they were just allowing themselves to be visible. I'm not sure, but it does feel like she kind of put something back in place by sacrificing herself. So you're telling me I'm being Elliot right now? And I'm like, wait, if the door swallowed the keys, how does she have the keys to... (laughs) All right, let's move on. Well, she readies herself and Irene straps her to the table. She says she doesn't know if it will work in the future. And that's what kind of made me think she's questioning if the deals are still in place. If she does this, will that mean that it's truly safe? But at least she will die a queen, which is more than she can say for Irene. Yeah, that was a good dig before she's murdered. So the final deal is that no fairy can be harmed by any human from this day on. Any being anywhere. Any being. She made that pretty specific, not just humans, but anyone. So, Christina, remember that for the end of the episode. <laughs> when you're going to prove my theory right? Over at Breakbills, Dean Fogg talks to Alice. He wants to know where the castle turned out to be. <sighs> Unfortunately, we find out why he's asking that later on. Another move that Alice messed up, but she tells him she needs a favor. She has fairy dust, and she wants to use it on something Fog is rumored to have, an experimental potion that wipes your memory and creates a whole new persona. She tells him she will always be tempted if she stays like this. He says she must sniff the fairy dust, drink the potion, and give it a full day for her to reboot. I was thinking the same thing here as I was with Julia. Does she have to be doing this right now? in the middle of this epic quest, if she's trying to repent, which I don't think she is, she's just (laughs) trying to forget, she knows she can't trust herself. Is this really the moment for all of that? Not at all. It's a very (laughs) selfish move. This is when I just started getting angry at Alice again. How many times do we need this woman to just go out on her own and mess things up? And with the group knowing that, why haven't they been watching it? They've been suspicious of her, especially Quentin. I mean, they allow her to come into the castle and she disappears two seconds later and nobody even thinks to ask, hey, where in the hell did Alice run off to? (laughs) They should have made sure she stayed there out of the way. And we see this is bad news. In the next scene, Fogg goes to the library and speaks with the librarian saying we need to talk about our arrangement. That was maybe the biggest twist. I don't call it a twist. In this episode, but I didn't like it. It's not a twist because it doesn't make sense. Here's my Elliot moment. Why would Fogg all of a sudden be against the crew and all of a sudden super selfish? His eyesight was just cured by one of the heroes, by Julia. He was a broken man before that. Okay, so let's try to explain this. He wanted to make a deal with the librarian so that he could open break bills again? Yeah, I went through this all in my mind already. Maybe it's not selfish. He's doing it for his students. Break bills deserves a chance to survive. But, if the but he knew the crew was on this quest yeah. to restore magic, and they had a Julia godlike being with them to help. How do you not trust in that to bring back magic the right way, and instead you go to the library and have dealings with the McAllisters to bring it back in a way you know isn't going to help anybody? Well, let's go even further. If your heroes do accomplish that, 
everyone has power. So break bills will be open. That's what I was saying. Making this deal with them did not make it more of a possibility that the quest would be done or completed because they waited till it was completed to come in and put in the cipher. After all the hard work's done, now they're going to come in and put the cipher in. What's the point, Dean Fogg? Yeah, and he's known that because he's had contact with our students from the beginning. I wondered if this is why they shadowed it by showing us the Dean Fogg of Timeline 23, who just said, I can't deal with this many more timelines of trying to help this crew, trying to make my students find a way for it to work, and it just keeps failing. Break bills keeps getting screwed, and I keep getting screwed, and the way we're doing it isn't working. But the Dean Fogg 40 we've been seeing all season hasn't been that way. He's been on the uptick. I mean, depressed and, you know, self-absorbed, but not like this. Not to that level. I again feel like they just chose Dean Fogg to put this storyline in. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't sit well with me. And it is another reason why there's no payoff. Well, and they could have had the same exact thing except him being forced into it in some way. The way he was being run by the McAllisters shutting him down and the board and everything, he didn't really have to be going along with it willingly. Mm -hmm. And maybe we'll see more that it wasn't like that eventually. I don't know. I know that they're already setting it up. We see in the ending of the episode where they're setting it up where Alice is going to make amends. She's going to be the one that saves the crew with the help of Dean Fogg. They're setting that up already. But you know what? At this point, I'm so angry. I'm like, you're not going to make it I question that because at the end, she's trying to do that, but she also seems to be turning into the Cassandra character that we saw. No, she's worrying about them. But did you see the way she was shut into a room, much the way we saw Cassandra was, starting to go crazy, even exhibiting some of those same behaviors and mannerisms? She can care, but if they keep her shut up like that and forcing her to work for them the way she was for the library in that scenario, that could eventually happen. As the group flies the Muntjac past the Infinite Waterfall, Alice talks to Q privately, saying she didn't tell anyone else about taking the potion. She explains what she's going to do and says her only regret will be not remembering that he is the one she loves. She kisses him and he tells her, I'll remember for the both of us. At that point, the Muntjac sails around the edge of Fillory and underneath to this dark world ribboned with lava where Castle Blackspire sits at the center. Another great musical entrance. Visuals, again, amazing. And particularly once they get there and Aura has to press on certain stones in the door for it to open up for the group. And this is a different door. That's why they didn't, that's why they didn't have to put the keys into a door. Yeah, they said she would open up the back door for them. Alice sneaks off, and Aura tells Quentin the monster needs to be served, coddled, and loved like a child. Without this one secure place and constant love, if his appetite goes unfed and it's unleashed, even the gods can't stop it. We see this teenage-looking boy come out, his eyes flash bright, and he says, Will you play with me? Very smart of Quentin. He starts showing him a card trick. Yep. That probably would have worked well for a long time. Very well. (laughs) And he kind of imprinted himself into this beast at this point. Yeah, don't let him get bored. That was a very strong message he seemed to understand. And of course, while he's doing this, though, Elliot sneaks in and shoots him with a magic bullet. So pissed off. (laughs) Just why? why? And Quentin is too. He turns around and starts arguing with Elliot. When they turn back, they see Aura has disappeared. 
I knew right away the way the magical dust or whatever was flowing. I was like, oh, he's taking over her body. I think even they suspected something was wrong, but they didn't have a lot of time. So they rush back into the main room to put the keys in when they are distracted with Alice coming in. As this is all happening, Alice snorts the fairy cocaine. To be able to do the magic to stop them. She breaks them down, pulls the keys, and basically destroys the keys. Yeah, it looks like she's actually melting them. (sighs) Melting the magic out, turning them to dust. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we know that snorting a little bit of fairy dust cannot give you the amount of power to destroy God-made keys. That doesn't seem to add up. And it's not even God-made. It's God-depleting keys, meaning he depleted all of his power to do this. Mm-hmm. So one could argue, you know, even Dean Fogg says she is his most prized magician. She's the most talented that's ever walked through his walls. Okay, so let's add that to it. I still don't believe it's enough power Unless she was a Niffin at the time, which she wasn't. Mm-hmm. It, it does, again, it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. And character-wise, it doesn't make sense. I mean, we have been seeing this very intense struggle with her, and I enjoy that. It's real, the fact that she can't let go of that power and that knowledge she had when she was a Niffin. She understands that it's a serious temptation for her and she needs to stop herself. But it seemed all along that she knows this is mostly an internal struggle. Sure, she doesn't trust other people or other institutions to make those big decisions. She thinks it's dangerous, but that is why it also doesn't add up her helping the library so much. There's still another institution that's deciding who gets magic and who doesn't, which is why I think she feels she has to go full force and just say, well, nobody can get it. But if that's the ending we're coming to, I would have liked to see some more intense character shifting in that direction, not just this is a problem for me and I need to stop myself. We've heard her say a couple of times, should humans really have this? Is this really the best idea? But it didn't seem to be going quite that far, that she would go against our group in such a major way. And I thought, if anything, that seeing Julia the past couple episodes the way she has, somebody who was doing something good with magic, those were her very words here. Magic just makes people different shades of bad. Meaning nothing ever good is done with that. All that happens are bad things. It might be easy to feel that way in your worst moments. But in comes Julia, Hmm. a very concrete representation that that's not true. Magic can be used for good things. And that kind of made me think about the fact that we did have these two incredibly powerful women throughout the course of this season, that they have been emphasizing that, going down two such different tracks. Maybe they should have had more interaction and crossing over than they did this season because they kind of kept them separated for the most part. Well, I believe... If I remember correctly, the beginning of the season, they were together. And so instead of having them interacting, it's they went from being together to going apart in their quests and what they do this season. Yeah, and it makes sense that they felt like they had to do that. But if you're going to wind up with this big clash at the end, and I liked that. Don't get me wrong. I was super excited. I wanted more of it. Yeah. When Julia finally shows up, You know, she's in the lab with Iris encouraging her to forget again, but she can't. 
She can feel the pain that they're going through, particularly Quentin, so she tries to come to their aid. Alice is destroying the keys. We see that the force that was inside the monster is now inside Aura. She tries to block Alice, but that doesn't work. The group says they need her to fix it, but Quentin says it's too late. Magic is gone. And this is when Julia shows up to confirm the truth of that. Alice did it somehow. She destroyed it. The magic really is gone. And she puts Alice in her place. None of your pain is what we'd call quiet. Especially yours. I know you thought this was for everyone's good. You'll see someday. It wasn't. For now, I need you to stay out of the way. Basically, it was a personal problem. She pushes her to the side and says, you just need to be out of the way right now. And that was very exciting. Somebody need to tell, needed to tell her that, but nobody was strong enough to do it except Julia. Yeah, it was a moment of triumph that we we're receiving, even if it was a minute moment. She also tells Q it's his bravery that made her see what she needed to do. What Prometheus did. Horcrouching. Horcruxing. And she does the exact same process, we assume, that Prometheus did to create them in the first place. She uses her power to create seven new keys. When finished, she's weak and unsteady, but they're able to put the keys into the locks, and water starts flowing into the fountain again. A new wellspring. Mm -hmm. I gotta tell you, this moment could have been awesome, but the whole time I was just angry. Just, I knew what she was doing. She was sacrificing herself. She was doing what we had perceived needed to happen in the storyline, but for a dumb reason. Mm -hmm. She didn't need to go out like this. Especially because you know the siphon is coming in at any minute that yeah. she's going to be sacrificing her godlike power. It's going to be just like Prometheus. Just to restore magic to the library. Yeah. And you might think, well, at least we're getting it back. We can somehow deal with them later. But the library has proven to be such a formidable foe that I don't know about that. I don't know how we get over on them. I don't know how I'll get over this <laughs> unless we get Harriet back who just destroys Zelda. And then I'll be like, hell yes, I'm over it now. Thank but we're God. not going to want to see that either because I do it's her mother. That. No, I want to see that. <laughs> you know, here's what I'm thinking, though. I don't know how you come back from this because no matter what Alice does from this point forward, most people are not going to forgive her. I feel like there's not much she can do to truly redeem herself in yeah. our eyes now. And as far as Julia, where do you go with her storyline that's interesting? If she's just back to being a regular magician, I'm nervous for these two incredibly interesting characters they've created of how do you move forward? Absolutely. I don't think anything that she does will make it better. I'm hoping that Penny 40 comes back in and kicks some ass. But you know the magicians is not going to be that that <laughs> clean. That would be fun, though, if he just showed up with all yeah. these characters that have been missing that we don't know where they are. And Penny's like amassing his own little army and they come back to help. So I have this struggle with Game of Thrones, often emotional struggle. And I have it often with the magicians. But the difference is Game of Thrones gives us enough wins, mm. especially the season, the episode before the finale episode. We get a big win. We feel good about they things. They let that sit in before for a while. they fucking dig another dagger into yeah. us. Yeah. What this season lacked, and I this is still my favorite season, but we had so much progression. There was no not even one moment of payoff at all. Mm -hmm. One would argue 
when they turn the keys and you see the fountain turn back on, there's your moment. Yeah. But no, not at all. It, if anything, it was the Julia storyline. But as you say, by the end of this episode, that's all reversed. Not yeah. only does she lose that, not only do we lose the magic we work so hard to get back, but our characters, our essential crew is erased. Yeah. Everything we worked. Can you turn that around? I mean, they don't even know who they are or the fact that they're magicians. Uh, What gives me a shred of hope is it's an experimental potion. It's potentially something Dean Fogg came up with. So hopefully that means there is a way of getting around it and undoing it eventually. I know this is what a lot of people are saying they like about the show that it has a very real way of portraying what it's like to be human, the essential human experience and how bad that sucks. Hmm. Which we say often. Right. But like you say, in a TV show, you have to strike a balance between that and feeling victorious at times, having some wins, being able to get on board with your main characters, between the fallibility that they have, sometimes doing things that we don't like so much, And receiving so many defeats, that can be really hard. And I mean, the nail in the coffin, just as this happens, Dean Fogg and Irene show up, they take the siphon, place it on top, and divert the flow to the library. Irene moves to what looks like kill the group in just a moment of anger, but Fogg reminds her they have a deal unless she wants problems with the library. And he then hands vials of the memory potion to the group. Irredeemable. Dean Fogg. Yeah, that was pretty bad. Clatchers, I'm not hating on the magicians. I'm hating on the feelings I'm having right now. That's what I'm hating on. I think everybody can agree with that. So many feelings. (laughs) And we do see, right, the immediate ramifications of that. It's sometime later at break bills. Things are up and running again. Professor Lipson is teaching students, but she complains after class privately to Fogg that magic rations are inadequate right now. There are constant power issues. She can't even assign homework. And we saw that firsthand. She's trying to show how to do a particular spell, and it turns off on her. It's not even enough. Yeah. This is what we were saying we were afraid of. When you have a fascist regime <laughs> they who's decide giving you when rations, and where and, yeah, how much? you can't even teach the magic. There's just enough to make you hungry. It's like giving you just little pieces of bread every day. Just enough so you don't die. But it's not enough to satiate you. And Dean Fogg was the kind of teacher that really wanted to run things the way he ran them. That's what made his break bills so great. Now, I know you could probably make an argument, and I would see your point, that in a way, Dean Fogg was doing the same thing. He would only accept certain students to the school that he thought were good enough after one very minor exam that maybe makes some mistakes sometimes. And when that happens, he wipes those students' memories, Mm -hmm. turns them back out into the human world, never to even know they have magic. Now they are denied of that experience because one person, Dean Fogg, said, you're not good enough. Well, it was not just Dean Fogg. It was... The test, it was the other teachers. Could they speak to the, I almost said Clatchers again. They speak to the potential magicians and they collaborate on that. But every school does that. But that's exactly what the library is doing, saying you deserve magic and you don't. He was doing the same thing to the students that walked through his doors. Who is he to say that every student who has magical capability can't come and practice somewhere? Listen, 
devil's advocate lady. But do you know what I mean? Like, you know, that's a little bit of a, I get to decide or our school, our institution gets to decide. And it's not just that he says you don't get into break bills. That I would understand. Maybe there's other schools or they can keep their memory and decide to go become hedge witches. They are wiped of that. They well, don't they have, even know they're magicians after they walk out of there. They go back to a normal human existence. But they have to keep magic a secret to normal humans. If you deny so many students or potential students and they go out back into the real world and they're angry, the knowledge of magic being out there will spread real quick and they'll be in danger. I'm sure that's what the library feels too. There are certain people that in their hands, magic could be dangerous. Not even just that they're not good enough to practice at break bills, but they might do something bad with magic. And so we can't let them have it and we can't let them go tell other people. They probably think that they're doing the right thing. And that's... Well, yeah, we say that. Most bad guys feel like what they're doing is the right thing. The inevitable argument. And, and so kind of it comes to a logical conclusion why Dean Fogg maybe got into this situation in the first place, that he could see that argument until he's on the other end of things, you know, and now he's shown... Oh, this is not so so great. You know, I can't work like this. Looking at my notes that I took during the episode, I could see myself getting more and more angry. <laughs> this is what I wrote. They're getting rations. Power is rationed. This is bullshit. I was very angry. Wait, at that was moment. it the worst part when he had to fill out his paperwork in triplicate? Oh, yeah. Because it's so something an institution like the library would do. I like that he found an end around on this one, that another school has extra magic. I don't understand if they don't even have enough to run their school, how other places have left over. But Well, he was saying that uh, their enrollment was a lot lower than they predicted. Mm-hmm. So they're agreeing to give him the leftovers. But she doesn't like that at all. She's trying to find logistics for a way to stop him. And we also see there's another very big reason he came to talk to her. The librarian says she made a deal and broke it. Unlike the others, she belongs to the library. Fogg says he wants to see her, and they take him to Alice, who's being kept in a cell. So before we go into Alice, let's break down Zelda real quick. What we have to do is we have to rewatch the episode with Zelda and Harriet. When Zelda is trying to explain to Harriet as she's growing up the reason why she's doing everything. You need to take those words and you need to place it on top of what she's doing right now to see where her headspace is at. It's not going to help people, because I did it. You're still going to be pissed off at her. But at least you'll kind of understand what's in her brain as she's giving Dean Fogg those eyes, saying, you have triplicate, you have triplicate. <laughs> right, I've actually well, been the one saying all season long that we should try to not be on her side, obviously, not say this is a good thing, but understand where she's coming from and that it's not from a mean, bad place that she's trying to deny people. She has the worry the same way we saw Alice have the worry, and it led her to a very wrong decision because they've been through things. They've experienced mm. or seen things where magic has yeah. gotten people into trouble. It's gotten people killed. It's created bad situations. And I absolutely don't agree with her decision, but can I see why she has come to this place? Yeah, for sure. Now that magic's back, maybe she's the one that gets her daughter back. Oh, I definitely think that has to play in early next season, that she at least goes looking for a way to do that, because we did see that she has 
true caring and feeling for her. But of course, if she does, she's going to give the potion to her because it seems like she's trying to eliminate any trouble that could possibly come her way. Yeah. Hmm. That's something. Dean Fogg will be, you know, maybe it's going to be nice. In a year from now, you know, (laughs) I will have gotten over this (laughs) and I'll be very happy for season four and ready for new storylines. And maybe what I've been asking for, more Dean Fogg, will finally come into play. Well, here's the thing. They did a little bit of a Game of Thrones move that all of your action came up to the penultimate episode. And then your very final episode is all about setting the board for next season. It doesn't always end exciting or happy. It's putting the chess pieces into place. Yeah, but we didn't get a victory last episode. No, that's that's the problem. They needed a bigger win in 12 mm-hmm. and a less rushed laying of the board in 13. I go back to what I said in the beginning. I think they try to do a little too much. Maybe this is going to be sacrilege that I say this. Maybe if they could only do 13 episodes... They got rid of the musical one. Mm-hmm. I really liked it, but storyline-wise, you, didn't you need could it. pull that out. Yeah. The second to last episode being them going to Black Spire, getting magic back. Mm. And then the last episode, they find a better way to get to the point where they're at now. 100% agree. I think that would have been better. 100%. I really like that. And also, if you made this episode a tiny bit longer. Yeah, of course. Move it at a slightly slower pace. Yeah. But it looks like sci-fi has a hard-on for this Krypton movie or show. So they didn't they probably cannot touch that time slot for Krypton. Oh, but this is your prize winner, baby. This is the magicians. <laughs> they can do what they want if I'm sci-fi. They want a three hour long episode. Give you it got to it. Them. <laughs> well, coming back to this scene here, because we're almost at the end. Fogg tries to reassure Alice that the others are safe. The McAllisters can't find them. But she's worried about the monster. She says the group doesn't even know who they are or that they're magicians. And she begs Fogg to help her so she can find the group and assist them. I saw the look on Fogg's eyes. He's going to cave. He's worried. I mean, come on. He's definitely still worried about them. And this whole idea of the monster that maybe he doesn't even know the full extent of yet when he finds out, that's going to change things. He's regretting it already. He is. See, look, I already want to love him again. (laughs) (laughs) And in the normal human world, our final scene shows us Isaac, which is Josh, going to pick up Janet, which is Margot. And I love that they did that. The Margot character is named Janet in the book. Julia is an architect for a center of the arts. I like that. Penny is a DJ. That was cool. That was actually like a cool shot. And you can see Penny being a DJ. I pictured it as... Penny's the one playing this song. I love this song for this mm. ending of the episode. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm emotionally stopping myself after the library. This normal humans section, I'm going to disconnect. This was great TV right here. This was beautiful and a great ending to a season. Well, and this is where they were getting to, coming back to this section of the book that they didn't do, which happened a little bit earlier, where our characters are thrust back out into the human world without magic. Um, Only here we've totally wiped their memory, too, in order to get to that place. So that's going to be some interesting fodder for season four. Yeah, I believe you thought you were there when Q goes back to the real world. I did. I thought it was coming. Yeah. And I almost said something. Thank goodness I didn't. Yeah, thank goodness. So we have this music. 
Guys, watch it again. Watch that ending. It's going to imbue emotion. It's so sad. But also, they seem happy for once. Especially Julia. She looked it, at least. Yeah, well, we like saw... free of that burden. Last time, when they were back out in the world, the torture was knowing magic was there and not having it. And that was the whole plot line of the Julia thing in the book, that she was the one left out there and she could remember she knew it was there, and she couldn't get her hands on it. Well, here too, season one, and for it was, sure. it was killing her. Whereas here, they don't know that. So what do they have to miss? Yeah. Uh, but. Each other. <laughs> they don't have each other, right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, is this really the top of their game where you want to be at in a happy life? Katie's a drug dealer. Yeah. So it seems like without magic, she's destined for some bad things. Being a drug addict, being a drug dealer, being a spy. She had magic for that, but she was a spy. Uh, she has the one. darker side that yeah. pulls at her. When she doesn't have something to keep her focused and on the right track, there are definitely these things that can steadily eat away at her. And Quentin is always in danger of just never finding anything. And I mm -hmm. think that's the message where we see him just roaming around a bookstore. And his name is Brian. And oh boy, is that scary. On his way out, Elliot stops him and says, Quentin, I found you. Will you play with me? I can't wait to get started on people who really deserve our wrath. Anything is more fun when you do it with a friend. Who is us? I thought it was one monster. Who is their wrath? Uh, I don't know. That's scary. Well, they did say the scariest. The mistake. Mistakes. Plural. Plural, yeah. Listen, I am so psyched for Elliot to be a bad guy. Watch that scene again, Clatchers. Elliot plays the perfect bad guy when he's walking down the street after Q, or Brian. Just look at his acting. I love it. Well, the, and not the, just a bad ugh. guy. It, this was probably really hard to portray because on the one hand, you have to be kind of innocent, childlike yeah. looking, just want somebody to play with me and engage with me. But then there is this truly deep, mm -hmm. dark side. And man, Hale Appleman nails it. Nails it. Well, that's the thing with children. They are so innocent, so sweet. But they still have anger. Their body and their mind doesn't know how to deal with that chemical yet. So and when the they needs, get angry, the needs are, <laughs> they need to lash out. The needs are boundless, but they are helpless. So imagine if mm. instead of helpless, they are They can just destroy mommy and daddy. I want more! <laughs> and then mom and dad just get fried. Yeah. That's what you're dealing with here. <laughs> oh, I love that scene. It was a beautiful scene. Beautiful ending. They, I, What I think they do is they just barely pull you back from the cliff with that scene. The precipice that they know you're on, even if you love the episode, as you said, the emotions that you're dealing with are just yeah. too much after all that. Clatchers, I hope you become Patreon members because I might get fired. I watch every episode the second time while at work. <laughs> and this time I was watching it. I have a few screens. I was watching it on one screen, but just half-heartedly because I was like, oh, fuck this. I just like, I didn't want to get angry again. But when it came to this scene, I had to watch it. I had to watch it and feel it fully. I was thinking about the questions that this leaves us with. And we went over a lot of the mainly missing characters. But in all of that, I completely forgot, where is Mayakovsky? I hadn't forgotten about it. I've thought about it many times every week. Just didn't bring it up because I felt like, I think at this moment, there's no room for Mayakovsky. Here's where there could have been room for him. We knew that all of this was incredibly difficult and dangerous, and even a little bit of magic could have helped us. Our group was too good 
to go after the fairy dust. That's always the problem they run into. There's bad people out there that will get that power by any means. We had Julia, but we couldn't exactly. We had to keep sidelining her so that we wouldn't have a decisive win. Mm -hmm. But we do believe that Mayakovsky still had more of those magic batteries. Why didn't we try to get one of those to finish the quest? Or if we did, would that mean we didn't get there? Because Prometheus said... It was the struggle that would bring the questers there. Maybe that would have been too easy. Or maybe you're bringing up key points for season four. Maybe Dean Fogg needs Mayakovsky and he goes sees him. Or maybe Mayakovsky is humble drum. What's up? (laughs) 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 No, I think. And where's the candy witch? (laughs) Yes. Yes, seriously. Where's your candy witch? She has Q's blood. (laughs) These might all come back into play and we will be so delighted when it does. I'm sure they will. But yeah, I think Mayakovsky is going to be a bigger deal next episode because our heroes are gone. We're going to need Penny Forty, or Dean Fogg is going to need Penny Forty, Mayakovsky, Persephone. Hopefully, will come back in. Mm-hmm. Although I don't put any trust into the gods, like I'm not going to depend on them. Yeah, she's already helped Julia. Is that kind of the limit of what she will do? And maybe Professor Lipson well, will she's help Dean Fogg. Still Fox. there. She's yeah. hanging around. We'll see. We shall see. Okay, I feel better now because <laughs> I am excited for next season. I I very much am. There's also one more thing we have to place our hopes into. And I know you wanted to come back around to this. This was something I had brought up last episode that I got very excited about. And then people made me feel like it was foolish to put too much stock into it. Now I'm thinking it really could be a big deal. The fact that Margot has a fairy eye. Yes, absolutely. And does that make her a quote unquote fairy in regards to she cannot be harmed by any being? We saw on Twitter, Nathan wrote, doesn't Margo still have a fairy eye, though? How will that come into play? And Christopher wrote, does that make Margo part fairy? And thus unable to be harmed by Irene. So we wrote to him and we said, by any being. Yeah, and that's what I had wondered at when she first got the eye, that I thought it was an acknowledgement from the fairy queen that she had finally learned to trust her and maybe even made her part fairy. Not fully, but enough that she would be recognized as one of them, that that deal would hold true for her, or at the very least, that she'll be able to see things that nobody else can. That's going to be a big deal for our group that is now stuck, not remembering each other or anything else. She did say, I see so much. So if they play their cards right, they can have some really interesting, I would hope the first two episodes are, uh, you know, you have Dean Fogg, and him dealing with what's going on. So that's the magic, right? And you have Fenn dealing with oh, Fillory. Yeah, that's the Fenn magic. There. But I want at least two episodes of our humans being humans. And I want slowly but surely, every so often, Margot starts seeing things because she says, I see so much. I see everything. As a human, like, oh my God, what am I seeing? Am I tripping out? What's going on from that eye? And that Fenn would be is very interesting. Trying to figure out where Elliot went and. You have these other characters out there that weren't affected by this that we talked about. Where's Marina? Where's Poppy? What about Penny Forty? Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it won't last for long. It's not like they're stuck out there on their own with nobody looking out for yeah. them. I'm excited again. All right. Well, I'm glad. This was we like came, therapy for we, me. We got it out. We came we back around. We went through therapy. Hopefully the Clatchers didn't hang up and hate <laughs> me for the beginning of this episode. I went through my therapy. I feel better. So it's, it's great. I mean, that's what we're always trying to do here, right, is 
create this virtual water cooler where we talk about our real feelings, our real reactions. Sometimes we love it. Sometimes we hate it. It's always still one of the best things on TV and having any kind of discussion about it is fun, but we got to keep it real. It's part of the journey. You discuss it amongst your friends, amongst your clatchers, and you come out with a different feeling. Okay, Jason, with all of that, let's move into our rating for episode 13. On a scale of 1 to 10 keys, what do you give the season 3 finale? At this point, the Clatchers know I had a lot of issues, but there's a lot of things that I really did enjoy about this episode. The beautiful visuals, the music was done very well for this episode, and the ending, if you just separate it from your feelings of what happened to the, cl- of what happened to the heroes, and just take that ending for what it was, very promising, very beautifully done. Elliot as a bad guy, so interesting. So for that, it saved it a bit. So for our season finale, I'm giving the magicians 8.5 keys. Okay, I'm going to give it an 8 keys, which is in line with episode 2, Heroes and Morons, and All That Josh. Kind of makes sense how I felt about those episodes. It's a similar type of feeling, except I think I was a little more level on those ones, and even 8, where there were parts of this episode that were a 10, and then there were parts that were a four. (laughs) So, you know, kind of wind up somewhere in the middle, but I still didn't want to go any lower than that. I did not dislike that strongly any episode of this season. It was a great season. Amazing season. Great is the wrong word. Amazing (laughs) season. But we're going to talk season as a whole in a minute. Listen, we know that the writers, the producers, they have a lot of things that they go through every season that we're not privy to. The amount of money, the amount of time, location. They have ideas for a story. They just can't do it. So they have to compromise. Then they have to compromise again. So by no means are we saying anybody or anything was bad. We're saying that we love our characters so much that uh, we were brokenhearted by a lot of things. And we thought some things in a perfect world with more money, if they were given GOT money, they probably would have oh, been able to do it goodness. better. Right? <laughs> With that being said, I commend them for a beautiful season, and I think they're really finding their stride, and they're really getting comfortable with each other, and I'm just more and more excited for the following season. Well, now it's time for the episode MVM. Yes, just keeping it to the finale right now. And this week, we were so angry with our characters that we only gave our Clatchers (laughs) three (laughs) characters to vote on. Well, there really were three big ones, or I should even say two big ones for the episode. So via at CKC Podcast, we gave our Clatchers Julia, Quentin, and the Fairy Queen. And it's a very close race with 43 minutes left, but I think we are pretty solid on the final answer here. It's very close. One of the tightest we've had so far. Coming in third with 8% is Quentin. The reason we put him up is out of most of our crew excluding Julia, he was the one that stayed true to what he's learned in these quests this season. I thought he showed more growth and strength in this episode than perhaps the entire season long. He knew what the quest was meant to do to you as a quester before anyone else did, before we learned about it from Prometheus in this episode. He understood that somebody had to step up and do the hard thing and was willing to take a life sentence as a jailer in order to bring magic back because that's how important it was. Even last episode, he was going off of the knowledge he's gained from so many years living during these quests with his father. 
he was willing to say goodbye to everything that was important to him, not just his father, but in the beginning of the episode, he thought he was saying goodbye to Julia, really happy for her, hope that you find the thing you've been looking for. Right before this, he was saying goodbye to Alice because he thought she was taking a potion that would wipe her memory forever. And then he was resigning himself to a life without magic, friends, or anybody taking care of this monster. So I thought it was a big episode for him. But it definitely pales in comparison to the other two characters. Coming in at second place, the Fairy Queen with 45%. She had a big episode tonight. Huge. Even though her airtime wasn't that big, she was there to help Fen a little bit. Don't say sorry. And she was there to sacrifice herself. There's a lot of sacrifices. Q was going to sacrifice himself, the fairy queen sacrificed herself, and Julia sacrificed her magic. Yeah, I think the only difference for me between Q and these other characters was he was stopped from being able to go Mm -hmm. through with it, but he was going to. Absolutely. So, the fairy queen literally sacrificed her bones, her life, her body, for the betterment of her fairies. Which leads us to question, and I don't know if we'll ever find out, who will be the next fairy queen? Hmm. Will it be one of our heroes? Will it be Margot? Maybe not. We do know that we probably should get along with whomever the new queen will be. Well, if she remains high king of Fillory, I don't see that happening. But if that changes around at some point, you never know. Coming in at first place with 47% is Julia. I mean, we've been watching this development all season Mm -hmm. long, so I don't think we have to get into that. You know all of the amazing things that she did and well-deserved. So let's go through what our Clatchers said in response to this poll. At MCC Lewis said, Julia has been MVP of season three and gave up her amazing power to save the world of magic. She has my vote. And it sounds like she's going with the season vote there too. I love that. And I might agree with that. (laughs) Markeisha wrote, both the Fairy Queen and Julia made very big sacrifices. I had to give it to Julia though. The way she basically put Alice down so she couldn't do any more outlandish things is amazing. Yes, the best part. I love the fact that our Clatchers, like everything they say, we mirror it exactly. Our (laughs) responses, our emotional responses are identical. And finally, Melly said, I'm voting Julia because of her sacrifice and she kicked ass all season. But I'm a bit disappointed as it felt like she should have sensed the beast was not dead. Good point. You said that too. Yeah, good point. Okay, so it seems like we're all pretty much on the same level. <laughs> so I'm going to just go, come straight out with it. My MVM this episode is Julia. You're fourth Julia in a row. That's Bad right. boy. That's right. Well, I've been saving my third Julia for this very moment because I had a feeling she was going to be a big player in the finale. I'm giving it to her as well. But honestly, for this episode in particular, more for the Alice thing than anything else. That was a really great moment. Yeah. She should have just showed up and been like, well, looks like I got to clean up your shit (laughs) yet again. Stop making problems, Alice. All right. So before we go on to the season stuff, let's go to our Clatcher's comments. But with our Clatcher's in mind, I need to give shout outs to our new Patreon members. For the end of March, we got Jose. Jose, thank you so much for being a Patreon member. And at the highest tier, we really appreciate that. You will be part of this month's drawing that we will be doing this weekend for the free CKC gear giveaway. So keep an eye out on Patreon for that video. 
And make sure that Patreon emails don't go into your junk folder. Because yeah, we've then had you'll that miss it. happen before. So just give that a, a quick check while you're thinking about it. And for April, we already have three new Patreon members. This is exciting. Our army's getting bigger. Thank you so much. April, Melanie and Derek, Andrew, and Todd. I didn't count wrong. Melanie and Derek are one account. So <laughs> it's three people. It's not Traumeister Todd, is it? <laughs> nice. <laughs> so thank you, guys. You will be in next month's drawing. But don't worry. You're still going to get the content this month. And if you haven't joined, it's not too late. Remember, this season's over of The Magicians. But in two weeks, we will be doing Westworld. And if you need more CKC in between, we're doing another movie review and another bonus podcast. And in addition, you have over two days worth of content from past bonuses and past movie reviews. That is your library to choose whenever you wish. As long as you're a Patreon member, you have access to that library. We finally covered the first installment of the Harry Potter series. We did the Sorcerer's Stone for our last movie review, so that's exciting. You can find that on there. We're going to be doing a poll for the movie review that's coming up. Hopefully, A Quiet Place will win, as that looks amazing. We're really excited about it. And it's scoring really high on Rotten Tomatoes. Really high on all of the critics' things, which is unusual, not just for a scary movie, but for them all to be in such yeah. agreement. For the bonus, we are also going to finally come back around to The Brain Part 2, as we promised. And that's going to be really exciting because hopefully we will have a special guest. So there's lots of fun things in store. And as Jason said, we are gearing up for Westworld Season 2. If you're looking to refresh on all that, please go back to the bonus episode we did for Season 1 that covers everything that happened and will get you prepared to jump back into that April 22nd. Being a Patreon member, you're not just paying for a membership. You're helping Christine and myself out to continue to improve this podcast. Hopefully one day we can quit one of our other jobs and give more content to the podcast and keep this water cooler growing. We're one step closer to that. We finally reached our first goal on there. I just want to give a thank you to everybody that made that happen. And now let's get into our Clatcher's comments. And some of these are going to kind of kickstart us into questions and thoughts about season three as a whole. Amir said, I am fucking mad at the episode two. What the fuck? I liked it, but it was just frustrating to watch. Overall, though, the cliffhanger is one that will keep me at the edge of my seat until next year. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And then he left a picture with how about a hug with Elliot and Margot. <laughs> Melly said, do you notice how all the characters become evil at a certain point in their lives or timelines? Niff and Alice, Shadeless Julia, Beast Quentin, now it's Elliot's time. Hmm, I'm trying to think about what other characters and if they're going to turn. Mm. You were suspicious of Penny 23, maybe that's how we get Penny being evil because it's his altar. Maybe. <laughs> she also said, isn't time supposed to be unpredictable when traveling between Earth and Fillory? Yeah, yeah we, we were thinking the same thing. We kind of talked about that. <laughs> and also regarding the fairy eye that Amir brings up, how that's going to potentially affect Janet. Melly says, I thought she would recognize Josh because of that, but it felt more like Josh got a sense of deja vu. And I liked how they used Janet's name from the book. Hmm. Me too. And I, I did wonder if there was going to be that um, underlying recognition, but when Quentin saw Elliot there seemed to be really nothing there. That's interesting if it will just be Margot that's different in that respect. Barbara wrote, Ah, West Coast airing just finished. Gonna need some time to process. All I've got right now is one, 
Really, Dean Fogg? (laughs) (laughs) Two, why the fuck didn't the Fairy Queen just take out Irene? Yes. I agree. (laughs) Yes. This is so funny. Why the fuck so many things in this episode? And three, I'm glad Julia didn't go full dark side mode. Yeah, that would have been so easy to do with Alice. That would have been another disappointment. Mm Mm-hmm. Four, what about Penny 40? Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to see what happened to Penny 40. And I think that's going to be one of the main through lines, at least for the first half of the season. I would love it if episode one, they went back to that for a good portion of time. We've been saying it would be nice to get the occasional episode where it's not so dispersed throughout a million different locations and they just kind of narrowed in on something, leave that hanging the way you did now and then have a good chunk of it, just what's going on in the underworld, Penny 40 next time. And Patrick says, after finally catching up, I was so excited for the finale to what has been the best single season of any show I've ever seen. It started out so strong, but ended up falling flat for me. Felt like the major threads were rushed to an unsatisfying close in order to set up next season. That couldn't sum it up better Yeah, this for me. Patrick, this is what I was talking about in the beginning of this episode. When I said that we had a clatcher that summed it up so eloquently. And I, I, I just had difficulty trying to put it in the right words. Mm-hmm. That's it right there. Yeah. He did a better job than we could. <laughs> so thank you for all of those comments. We're just going to go into some brief thoughts about season three as a whole. Starting out with our season three ratings and MVMs. I tallied up IMDb. Their average for season three would be an 8.7, with the highest being episode five, A Life in the Day, coming in at a 9.5, and the lowest, episode seven, Poached Eggs, at an 8.1. I love the fact that you do that, Chris. Tallying up all that, it really puts it in perspective for us. Yeah, definitely. It can be hard when you're kind of micro-analyzing episode for episode. How did we feel about everything as a whole? Of course, we know we loved this season. (laughs) I mean, it's been 13 weeks, Chris, since we started just The Magicians season three. That's a pretty long journey for TV nowadays. There's not a lot of shows that still have that many episodes. I'm so happy that they stick with that. And so let's go into our season ratings. I have both of us tallied up as well. I come in at an 8.8 and you at a 9. That's right, because I have a bigger heart. Well, my highest episode was A Life in the Day for 9.7. And yours was the season opener, The Tale of the Seven Keys for a 9.8. I got to tell you, I got to watch that episode again. I don't even remember it at this point. I was so happy that The Magicians was back. But if I'm really thinking of everything I remember, my highest really should be A Life in the Day. And that was that your was next. My favorite. That yeah. was your next one at a nine point six. So okay. yeah, that's that's pretty close. And then lowest, I had a three way tie as we kind of just talked about with a scoring of an eight for heroes and morons, all that Josh, and this finale. Will you play with me? And mine was all that Josh with eight point three. Yeah, that definitely all adds up. Okay, but this next one is subjective. So let's give our season MVMs. Who do you think was the most valuable character? However, I think this is going to be kind of obvious, and it's probably going to be the same person that we both pick, right? I mean, we gave it to Julia a ton of times in a row, and she had a very strong character arc for season three. And we did predict this. I think around episode three or four, we started saying that right now Julia is getting the shortest amount of screen time 
but she's getting the biggest amount of growth. And it's inevitable that by the end of this season, we're going to see a lot of Julia MBMs. And that truly did happen with me. From episode 10 to 13, I had Julia as MVMs. And for my MVM for the season, it's got to be Julia. But I got to say, the first half of the season, I had a lot of Elliots. Yeah, you had an Elliot run. Because he was amazing in the season. It was really an Elliot show for a while there. I also gave it to Elliot a few times and Margot a few times. And she does come in kind of a close second for me, if you're thinking about season MVM, as I talked about, it's a little hard when Julia was the only one that had magic. That level is going to be hard to reach. So if another character was given magic, would they more be in the running for that conversation? If you're just looking at pure character development, Margot comes pretty damn close. The amount she totally turned around from the person she used to be, I think she's grown more than any other character followed closely by Elliot. And then if you get into our Clatcher's poll, the highest winner for any episode was Julia with a poll win of 85% for episode 11, 23. So confusing. For episode 11, titled 23. Yes, she got 85%. There's a lot of numbers in there. Um, But if you look at people that consistently were voted, we've had Julia twice. Well, let's just go through it. Yeah, I just want to say the the high ringers, you've had Julia twice, Margot three times, and Elliot three times. Uh Uh-oh. So those are your high scorers. If we had a bonus, we would ask the Clatchers for a poll. Mm-hmm. But at this point, we just don't have time. We have to prepare for the next show that we're doing. So we have a tie. Ugh. We have a tie with the most times between Elliot and Margot. Mm-hmm. But we have the highest percentage with Julia, and she was twice. I think she would take it if you look at that. Mm. And So let's vote for the Clatchers here and say, I think they're going with Julia. Yeah, there's so much commentary, too, about her in all of the feedback that we've been getting. So to reiterate, on the polls we had for Heroes and Morons, Elliot, this is the Clatcher poll. Episode 3, The Losses of Magic, Margot. Episode 4, Be the Penny, Penny, of course. Episode 5, A Life in the Day, Elliot and Q, Mm -hmm. duh. Episode 6, Do You Like Teeth? Quentin, that was his episode. Poached Eggs, Margot and Elliot. Six stories about... Sh- Oops. Six short stories about magic, Harriet. <laughs> Christina wrote six stories about <laughs> short magic. <laughs> All That Josh, Katie. The Art of the Deal, The Fairy Queen. 23, Julia. The Florian Candidate, Margot. Will You Play With Me? Julia, but the Fairy Queen was right there as well. Yeah, and I like that all of those polls totally make sense. The winners fit in with who really was most yeah. valuable for each episode. I mean, that just shows how amazing you Clatchers are. And thank you for participating in those votes. We really hope to keep the polls going for future shows. It's been a lot of fun. To finish this off, I had a couple of fun facts that are kind of random and they have to do with book knowledge and could contain spoilers. So I just want to give you that warning here. If you're going to head out now, we are looking forward to a season four that we know has been renewed, luckily. And they tell us when one chapter ends, another begins. The magicians will return in 2019. You say luckily, I'd say Hades would say it was their destiny. Of course it was. 
Well, there was some interesting information that I wanted to bring up a while ago, and we never got around to it. There is a book by Lev Grossman that's a brief guide to the hidden illusions in The Magicians, and I want to own this so that I can look through all of these amazing facts. But just a couple that I found, he talks about where he came up with certain things, including names. So Quentin, he says the name is borrowed from another overly bright, way too self-conscious young man, Quentin Compson, from The Sound and the Fury. And Bigby, Professor Bigby, that was a D&D reference, and apparently he made lots of D&D references. Bigby was a powerful wizard in the Greyhawk setting. Dungeons and Dragons, if people didn't know. Yeah, oh, come on. Yeah, you gotta <laughs> know Dungeons and Dragons. This one I really like. When he refers to the hedge witches in this story, he says, When I wrote this, I honestly believed I was nodding to George R.R. R. Martin, where in Westeros, a masterless wandering knight is called a hedge knight. He since then learned that the term hedge was around long before George R.R. R. Martin, but that's who he was trying to reference by calling them hedge witches. And of course, we all know the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe comes up a bunch. We have the questing beast in this universe, which is a gloss on the white stag. And there's a bunch of others, but a lot of kind of similar references, D&D, A Song of Ice and Fire, Gulliver's Travels. This sounds like it's really interesting. I would definitely check it out. Also from the books, there was a really good reference that came into play in this finale where we are finally talking about Black Spire and the Upside Down. In the books, it's Rupert and Martin Chatwin that go on this adventure I wouldn't really call it an adventure, but Martin is seeking out a way to be able to remain in Fillory, and he figures out how to get to Castle Blackspire. Rupert does not want to go with him, and he's very afraid of what's happening to his brother, how consumed he's becoming with needing to get this power, something that will eventually turn him into the beast. And he's also becoming a bit disillusioned that Fillory is not this incredible place with no issues that they were trying to escape to. Kind of the way our characters learned that this season, it has its own problems. So there's a passage that highlights that so well. He says, I think I knew then why they did it, why Ember and Umber wouldn't let us stay in Fillory. It wasn't that we were too old or too sinful. It wasn't so that we could spread their wisdom in another world. It wasn't that being in Fillory made you happy, and in its own way, too much happiness was as dangerous as too much sadness. That is a lie that even Ember and Umber never told. No, it's that Fillory was cruel, as cruel in its own way as the real world was. There was no difference, though we all pretended there was. There was nothing fair about Fillory, just as there was nothing fair about people's fathers going to war, and their mothers going mad. And the way we, among all animals, were cursed with a longing for something better— somewhere that never existed and never would. Fillory was not better than our world. It was just prettier. <laughs> That's beautiful. I like that. Yeah, and it kind of perfectly sums up what we've been talking about all season, that this is the real story about magic and the fact that it is not great. And at the bottom of it are creatures, mainly humans, that are so fallible that they frustrate the hell out of us, including... <laughs> This season finale, where that was a very big part of things, now we're going back to the human world, but that's something to keep in mind that, you know, Fillory had its own set of problems and magic has its own set of problems. So it's going to be interesting to see how we're now juggling that again for season four. So we know that season four will come out in 2019. We have a whole year to wait. 
We've had so much rescheduling with all our shows. I hope that we don't run into problems in 2019 with our three big shows. Yeah, and what she means by that is if we have two shows running at the same time, I don't think we have the ability, the physical ability and mental fortitude to do two shows at once and our Patreon. We've cut it really close at times with Game of Thrones and Mr. Robot and the Magicians in Westworld. And it's only because they all keep shifting that it keeps working. But it makes me afraid. Let's keep our fingers crossed. So that's it for this season. It's so sad (laughs) to say goodbye to you guys. But hopefully you will be following us over to Westworld. And if not, hopefully you'll be following us over to Patreon. Yeah, because the magic does continue over there. So until next year, or until two weeks, or if you're a Patreon member, until this weekend, this round's on me. This round is on me! Quentin, I found you. Oh, uh, no, sorry, I'm Brian. Do a card trick for me, Quentin. <laughs> Come on. Will you play with me? I'm um, sorry. I think you've got me mistaken for somebody else, but I, you know. I saw it. I felt it. Even the gods are afraid of it. This is your fault just as much as it is mine. Get me out of here. Help me. Stop it. Get you, get you one way or another. I'm gonna see you, I'm gonna meet you one day. Don't be scared. This is great. There's so much for us to do together. Uh, I can't wait to get started on all the people who really deserve my rash. Um, no, look, please, I'm not. This is gonna be so fun. I think anything is more fun when you do it with a friend.